as Alex said, uh, we're in a teaching series called Tetelestai. Who's ever heard that word before? Good. Okay. No. Oh, all right. A few native Greek speakers here, I guess. Um, that's a single Greek word that sums up uh, what we translate in using three English words in John 19.30. Jesus cries out his last word upon the cross. He says, Tetelestai, it is finished. So we're trying to reckon with the significance of what is finished, the significance of Jesus' death. And as Alex said last week, this is an inherently impossible task. Uh, It's like trying to drink up all the water from a natural spring. When I was in college, a few miles north of our campus, there was this little pipe that jutted out from underground, and there was a natural spring that would just, it was literally along the side of the road, and the most pure, amazing water would just gush out 24-7 from this natural spring. And I was a bit of a coffee snob back then. And I would go and fill up jugs with this really good water to make my coffee. Um, Ask anyone on the staff team. I drink a lot of coffee. Um, So it's kind of like that, though. The cross is like that spring that you can come and you can fill gallon after gallon after gallon after gallon. And it's just going to keep gushing out 24-7. The significance of the cross is unfathomable. So our aim here is not to gain mastery over the cross. We're not going to give you the five definitive points uh, of what Jesus did on the cross. So you can be like, well, checked that off, got that nice and figured out. Um, But rather, what we want to do is sit by the spring and, and drink and find rest for our souls. So this week we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're talking about the scandal of the cross. The scandal of the cross. And what I don't mean by that, I don't mean that there's some kind of scandalous inside story that you haven't heard before, right? Um, It's not that there's like uh, some kind of like secret message of the cross and it wasn't what you think it is. What I mean by the scandal of the cross is that the cross itself is a scandalon. That's the Greek word that is translated in our passage, stumbling block or rock of offense, It's a scandal, right? It's this thing that you trip over. So in this literal sense, I live in a household that is full of scandal. Uh, In the early mornings, I come down the stairs to work on my, in the dark to work on my sermon, and I need to get to that coffee machine to press the button, and I am regularly scandalized by various wooden blocks, Paw Patrol rescue videos, plastic dinosaurs, and our cat, who we've named Davy Crockett, because he's a wild man. And he uh, has a knack for placing himself, his body, right beneath where your foot's going to land while you're on the stairs, usually carrying something, usually a child. Um, and, uh, and I'm scandalized regularly. And Paul says uh, that the cross itself is a scandal. You know, there's a lot of things that can trip us up in our walk with God. Maybe it's a... Uh, an unresolved question for you. Sometimes I, people will be just uh, tripped up or scandalized because they, they just have a misunderstanding about what Scripture actually says. Uh, maybe it's a bad experience in the church that has scandalized you. I find that oftentimes the work of an evangelist or of sharing your faith is kind of removing these other uh, stumbling blocks 
helping people to, to work through that. Maybe you need to emotionally process that experience with a trusted friend. Or maybe you just need to have this particular intellectual quandary, quandary cleared up. But, but, there are some, there's one scandal that cannot be removed, right? The cross itself is the scandal that try as we might, we cannot move around, we can't step over it, we can't get it out of the way. This is the thing that historically causes people to walk away. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, and we're going to be zooming in this morning on verses 22 through 24. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. To give you a little bit of context, this is a pastoral letter that Paul, who was kind of a pastor missionary, wrote to this young church and this young church was situated in a wealthy, affluent, progressive city called Corinth, okay? Uh, think of, like, the cutting-edge cultural centers of America today. So, like, New York, Los Angeles, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, it's like that kind of thing. Everything's going on. That, was, that last part was a joke. You were correct in laughing there. Um, but he's writing to this, and if I were the person writing that letter, I would want to start off with something that's kind of nice, not too offensive. I don't want to rock the boat right off the bat. I would say something that doesn't offend people. Maybe um, something about the intellectual credibility of the gospel. That's not where Paul goes. Paul comes in hot with an extremely controversial message. Look at verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block or scandalon to Jews, and folly, the word there is moria, from which we get the word moron, it's folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. So Paul goes in, he issues a blanket proclamation of Christ crucified. And we see three different categories of response to this blanket proclamation. There are Jews who demand religious signs and they're scandalized by the cross. There are Greeks who seek wisdom and they think the cross is foolishness. And then there are those who are called by God, who look at the cross of Christ and they, they see the wisdom of God and the power of God. And I want to say something about each of these three categories of response. First, Jews demand signs, and to them, the cross is a scandal. This doesn't mean that all Jewish people just want to see miracles. Paul has in mind a specific group who are using their religion as a kind of cosmic candy machine. You know, you put your quarter in, that would be your prayer, and then you turn it, and automatically you expect whatever it is that you want to come out. That's what they're up to. The New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner writes that for these sign seekers, suffering was deemed to be incompatible with the promises of God. Let me say that again. Suffering was deemed to be incompatible with the promises of God especially in terms of a crucified Messiah. So these people want prosperity, and they want like religious, religious intensity, right? 
They want to be where it's happening religiously, where the, it seems that God is on the move, and they want it to go well for them. They want to be wowed. They want to be well supplied. They don't want a God who goes to a cross. That's a scandal. And actually, this kind of religion is alive and well in our day. Uh, you'll hear it preached from pulpits of megachurches. You'll hear it uh, if you turn on to any number of televangelists this morning. And the message is that God's will is that you will be happy and healthy and wealthy here and now in this world. And it usually comes by either applying certain biblical principles to your life or praying in a certain way or more often calling a toll-free number to make a donation to get a prayer cloth. And then you can gain physical healing or financial victory as well. Right? Religion can be something that is used for us to get the things that we really want that are not God. And I have to admit that like, it's really easy for me to fall into kind of this. I'm not, I'm not taken in by televangelists on a regular basis. Um, but I find it easy to fall into this like uh, allure of comfort and prosperity. My wife and I have been talking about uh, kind of looking at houses and talking about moving a little bit closer to the church to cut down on the commute. And every time we go to look at a house, you know, there's always this process where you start to imagine your life in that place. Right? You think, oh, okay, this piece of furniture can go there, this piece can go there, we'll color this wall, um, we'll take this out. And I find that as I imagine my life in the future, honestly, so much of the time, it's all this life that is centered around me and achieving my comfort, my prosperity, whatever can serve my own ends. Right? That's the life that I always want to envision for myself. Jews demand signs. They want, these, this group of people wanted to find a way where God would supply what they needed, would fill up their religious bucket without costing anything. And ultimately, in the end, it's all centered on them. And that sounds nice, but if that's Christianity, then Jesus himself clearly lost the script. Uh, what God actually promised is Romans 8.29. We will be conformed to the image of his son. So if you follow Jesus, you will become more like Jesus. That's promised. That's a promise. And in the end, that means what? It means glory in the end. But here and now, it means that there's a 0.0.0% chance that you will avoid suffering. Zero percent. You will not skate above the fray if you follow the Lord. That's a scandalous truth. So my prayer is that none of us would, trump, would trip over it. Second, Greeks seek wisdom, and to them the cross is foolishness. So the Greek-speaking world of Paul's day had this rich heritage of thinkers who used reason and observation to discover the mysteries of human existence and to do lots of really nice practical things as well, right? This tradition is called, anyone know what it is? Philosophy. It comes from the Greek philo, meaning love. Think Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? Uh, philo, meaning love, and sophia, which means wisdom. Philo, sophia, philosophy. 
And by the first century, uh, these methods of Greek philosophy had spread throughout the known world. And really, a lot of it still undergirds everything that our society believes today. Plato and Aristotle are really at the basis of a lot of systems of thought that you'll find. Um, but the fundamental premise of all of it, of all of Greek philosophy, is that the good life, the good life, can be achieved and discovered through examination and critical reflection. So you can think your way to the good life. And this is a, a wonderful thing in a lot of ways. But like all things, it can become an idol. As Paul ventured throughout the Greek-speaking world, he consistently ran into people who were obsessed with gaining knowledge. They are obsessed with their philosophy. So, for instance, Acts chapter 17. You don't need to turn there. Luke, the author, says that, quote, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived in Athens would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They just wanted more knowledge. It was like the ultimate technocracy. And this kind of reminds me of the self-help books that we see today, right? There's this multi-billion dollar industry that's centered around the idea that with the right techniques, with the right uh, methods for hacking your own psychology, with the right scheduling methods, you can actually fix your life and achieve the good life here and now. Again, this is not all bad. Please don't, don't send uh, me an email this week uh, about how I bashed self-help. Or if you do, send it to Alex, all right? Um, <laughs> please do. Uh, but, uh, but it's not an ultimate thing, right? Sometimes a little good advice can go a long way, but it can't get you all of the way. Paul says that we have a deeper fundamental problem. And for that, we need a drastic remedy. And it's one that these wisdom-loving Greeks thought was foolishness. Utter foolishness. The biblical scholar Martin Hengel writes that in the first centuries, crucifixion was considered so shameful and graphic that it was taboo to even talk about it. Right? We get this quote from the Roman writer Cicero. The very word cross, he says should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. So crucifixion was so gruesome and unimaginably shameful that you couldn't even mention it in polite company. It was like bad manners. There are words I could say from this pulpit right now, and I won't say them, but there are words and acts of violence that I could depict that would make everyone in this room just cringe and, and sort of tighten up inside, right? There are certain things that you just don't say in public. In the first century, the cross was one of those. Nowadays, you can go into Lifeway Christian Bookstore, and you can get these things called testaments, not testament, testament, M-I-N-T, right? They're altoids that have little crosses on them. And I guess the premise is that if you hand these out, it can be like an evangelistic tool or something like that. Has anyone seen these before? Testaments? Oh, it makes me want to vomit. But, but it's so cutesy, isn't it? Like, the cross, if we, we see the symbol of the cross everywhere, and it's always kind of ornate and nice. I mean, look behind me. It's golden, it's tidy, there's nothing barbaric or gruesome about it. 
But for the folks in Paul's day, they would have actually seen people be crucified. In 73 BC, there was a slave in uh, Rome who rose up. His name was Spartacus. You might have seen a movie about this. And he rose up and resisted the, the Roman forces for a long time. And when he was finally defeated, he was killed in battle, and 6,000 of his followers were crucified all at the same time, lining the main highway going into Rome. So if you were a traveler walking into Rome as for miles, you would just see people hanging there. It was gruesome. It was barbaric. It was too soon to even talk about it. Viscerally, it would have made people sick. This gives us some context for how Paul goes in and says the word of the cross. Right? Um, When Paul told these Greek philosophers that their wisdom is not sufficient and that they need to be rescued by a crucified Jew, most of them dismissed him as a lunatic. That's what the scriptures basically say in Acts 17. Greeks seek wisdom, and to them the cross is folly. It's moronic. It's insane. And honestly, maybe that's you. Um, Maybe you're not duped by the religious hucksters on TV, uh, and you don't actually expect everything to go your way if you follow Jesus. But you've gradually given yourself over to a kind of self-reliance. I have to confess that I stumble over this stumbling block, too. It's really easy for me to slip into believing that I stand or fall on the basis of my own competence. This just might be one of the idols of Fox Chapel. That we stand or fall on the basis of our own competence. And that all I really need to fix things is to make a few tweaks here or there. A little more wisdom, a little more competence in this, a little bit more technique. Salvation by the efforts of my own mind. But the message of the cross is that you and I need a savior. Luther said it was like we're a caterpillar in a ring of fire, right? Caterpillars can't jump. Um, And so there's fire all around you. And there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. If someone doesn't come and pluck you out, you are doomed. The only solution is that we live by radical, costly grace. Costly to God himself. Now there's a third group of response, isn't there? The cross is a scandal to those who just want the quick fix. It's foolishness to those who trust in their own wisdom. But, verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks and Fox Chapellians, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So God is infinitely wise and infinitely strong. He understands the universe much better than you do, much better than I do. He knows what's wrong. He knows how to fix it, right? Uh, when a patient goes into surgery, uh, you do, the patient, we don't expect the patient to fully like, comprehend everything that's wrong uh, in their body, right? Um, I shattered my collarbone a few years ago, and I did not know when I went into surgery how many pieces it was in. I just didn't know. 
I don't know how to fix bones. That's what Caleb's for, right? Um, among other things. But uh, you wouldn't trust me to know that. But I certainly hope that the person who's taking the knife to me does, right? If they don't, we're in a whole lot of trouble. We trust the surgeon because the surgeon understands things and sees things that the patient simply doesn't understand or see. God is the great surgeon. He understands our condition infinitely better than we do. This is one of the ways in which Christianity opens us up to mystery, is that we acknowledge that on some level, we do not understand what the fundamental human condition is. We don't know all the problems that are going on under the hood. There's a lot more to it than that, than we think. If the human condition could be fixed by just a little bit of wisdom and a few flashy miracles, a quick fix, then I think God would have done it that way, right? He's not stupid. He knows exactly what needs to be done. But that's not what he did, is it? Our physician prescribed a treatment that was drastic and costly and bloody and painful, infinitely painful to his own self. That tells us something about our own condition. My prayer is that we wouldn't be scandalized by this. That we would recognize that there's something inside of our own constitution that needs more than a quick fix, more than a little better thinking, that actually needs someone to come and fix it. Um, And that we would trust our great surgeon. And that as the prayer book says, we would, as we walk in the way of the cross, we would may find it none other than the way of life and of joy and of peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess that I am so often ignorant about the state of my own soul. I confess that I'm so prone to just trust myself and think that if I can add a little bit to my life or clear a few things up, then I can fix it and that I'm not actually a broken mess. Lord, would you mend our souls? You mend us. Give us the courage to trust you, that we would, we would go under your, under your, um, your good knife, your, your healing touch, because that's the only way we can be made whole. If there's any here who have not trusted you before, never looked at you and said, that is the one that I trust. If there's any here who have been trying to manage, I pray in the name of Christ for freedom and deliverance and peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.